Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Pods for Peds, a podcast through the Enzo and Me Pediatric Cancer Foundation, where we'll be interviewing individuals from all across the pediatric cancer world, from oncologists and researchers, to nurses, to child life specialists, to families, to the little superheroes themselves. I'm Danny Keller, co-founder of the Enzo and Me Pediatric Cancer Foundation. And I'm Krista Keller, co-founder and director of Enzo and Me, and mom to our beloved Enzo. Today, we welcome someone who's extremely near and dear to our hearts, Dr. Anu Agrawal. He's Enzo's oncologist at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland, in the Hematology Oncology Department, as well as co-director of the Early Phase Novel Therapeutics Oncology Program. We're lucky enough to also have him as a member of our Scientific Advisory Board. On today's episode, we'll be talking about various aspects of the pediatric cancer field, and how private foundations like Enzo and Me can best assist in improving the future of pediatric cancer outcomes with resources and funding. So grab your favorite quarantini, a comfy seat, and join us in our wonderful conversation with the fantastic and ever-patient Dr. Anu Agrawal. joining us, Anu. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, we obviously are doing our first ever podcast today, um, so we w- really wanted it to be you. We really wanted uh, Enzo's oncologist to be the, the first person that we talked to about all of this stuff. We appreciate you so much and everything that you've done for us personally and him. and for him. And, you know, it's just, you've been amazing. And so um, we just really wanted a lot of other people to get to know you a little bit better um and to hear some of the answers that you have and some of the opinions and insight that you have into the pediatric cancer world um that's you know we've unfortunately unfortunately learned a lot about but uh but a lot of people don't know about and so we really wanted to, to promote that today thanks i appreciate that and, and as i've said before it's, it's truly a team effort it takes so many people to make these kids better so i appreciate the part i can play with the rest of the team and of course the family as well Thank you. Thank you. All right, so Chris is going to start us off. Well, I was going to, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit to anyone who's listening or watching? Sure, yeah. My name is Anu Agrawal. I um, have been at uh, Benioff Children's Hospital Oakland now since uh, I did my pediatric residency here um, back when it was Children's Hospital and Research Center Oakland. So I did that. Um, really, I was planning to do, do general pediatrics. My mom is a general pediatrician back in Texas and uh, I just always really gravitated towards kids, and I really loved the fact that she had continuity with her patients, could see them grow up from, from zero to 18 or even beyond, and, and really be an important mentor in their lives and see them through those important stages of development. So that was really my plan. I was going to be a community pediatrician, probably move back to Texas after coming out here for residency. I really gravitated towards the residency program here because of the, the mission of the hospital and taking care of patients from all different diverse backgrounds and, and, and giving them equal and great care. And, and, but during that time, I just really found myself uh, uh, more and more gravitating towards patients with more complex disease states. And, and I thought about um, emergency room medicine, um, thought about the intensive care unit, and I thought about hematology, oncology. And, 
And in the end, I chose hematology oncology because it, for me, was a balance between being able to take care of sick kids, but also having that continuity, which I thought I would miss with some of the other subspecialties. And, and I think for me, that's really the special part of the job is to be able to take care of these sick kids and help guide the families through, I think, you know, one of the most challenging time or the most challenging time of life and um, good and bad. Um, obviously, we have to do both. And, and I think that that continuity has its positives and also has its challenges, of course. You know, it's challenging for everybody, especially if the kids don't do well. Um, but for us, I think that's also the most rewarding part. And, 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 and being able to take care of sick kids, I think that really is, is, is a privilege for us to do that jointly with the family. So, so yeah, I never uh, went back to Texas and I did my fellowship here as well and um, have now been attending in Oakland for about six years. Wow. Okay. Well, we're glad you're here. Yeah, we're very glad Texas didn't get you back. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely an adopted Californian now. I can't imagine anywhere else. <laughs> It happens, yeah, I know. Um, okay, well then, um, I was gonna talk to you about your background, ask you about your background a little bit and why you chose your um, career in pediatric oncology. Maybe you kind of over, you know, you kind of spoke about that, but maybe a little bit more detail um, with the pediatric oncology field? Yeah, sure, so I think I think um, it's, it's really a special place to be, especially if you are in an academic center, because it allows you to do so many different things. So you get to have direct patient care, which is, I think, for us, the, the primary focus of our jobs. Um, being able to see kids both in the hospital when they're sicker, as well as in the outpatient setting where they're well is, is a nice balance. And I think the nice part about academic cancer, especially in pediatrics, is you get to wear a lot of different hats. So it really keeps it really uh, always uh, very interesting. And, and so those additional things are, are, are research. So uh, clinical and translational research are really interesting. And, and the science in terms of oncology growth is, is so exciting. And there's so many novel therapies that we'll talk about, I'm sure, as, as we go through this podcast. So that's a huge aspect. And, and then being able to teach is really great in, in academic medicine, teaching both pediatric residents as well as hematology oncology fellows. Uh, medical students, uh, help them participate in, in development of research and really their interest in medicine as well as science. So being able to wear all those hats uh, is really a nice part of our job. And, and I think all of those aspects drew me towards oncology in addition to the, the things I talked about in terms of really the, the privilege of being able to be part of the journey with families in this experience. Okay. It's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, so kind of going back to the pillars that we were talking about of academic and research and clinical um, that a lot of the academic kind of facilities run off of um, throughout your career where where have you found the most interesting where's your biggest draw as far as the research goes and what are you working on right now in the research field um, looking at pediatric cancer moving forward so i think for us we're lucky because now the outcomes for pediatric cancer as a whole are quite good and that's thanks to our contemporaries who were brave enough to do this job back in the 60s, 70s when most kids died. And it's really through continuous research, clinical trials, where the outcomes have improved so much. And unfortunately now overall, 75 to 80% of kids with cancer are cured, but there are huge pockets where the outcomes are not as good. And so a lot of the focus is on that. So solid tumors with metastatic disease at presentation, the outcome is still pretty dismal. Um, acute myelogenous leukemia, AML as well, the outcomes have improved, but still have a long way to go. 
And now we're thinking more and more about disparities in outcomes. So there are more and more publications now in terms of how outcomes are variable depending on your race and ethnicity, um, with Hispanics, African Americans doing worse, and also more and more publications about socioeconomic status being a factor. So those from lower socioeconomic statuses, even in pediatric patients, it's well known in adults, primary is insurance uh, as a driver, but it also occurs in pediatric patients for multiple reasons. So disparities in care is definitely an, in, an interest in me, for me. So from, from, a, from a science standpoint, um, I helped to develop and run our early phase program in Oakland. So this is for novel therapies, early phase trials for patients that have poor outcomes or, who, or have limited options. And that's something that we're continuing to try to grow um, just to give kids more options as far as uh, potentially beneficial therapies um, if their disease has not responded as we'd like or has come back and their, their treatment outcomes are less. Uh, we also developed a cellular therapy program here. So one of the really exciting new therapies that we'll talk about uh, is um, called immunotherapies or cellular therapies. And, and this is ways to harness the body's own immune system to fight cancer. And it's really an elegant and sophisticated way to try to give targeted therapy without a lot of the off-target off side effects. And, and so there are more and more ways that many scientists are looking at to either re-engineer the body's own cells, so they specifically target cancer cells, or to stimulate the immune system so it can overcome barriers that the cancer has made to really block the body's own uh, response, uh, immune response to these cancer cells. So we, we participate in collaborative consortium networks to offer clinical trials for um, novel therapies for solid tumors as well as immune therapies. And that's definitely an area that I am really excited about and working on continuing to grow here from a clinical standpoint. We also have a lot of partnerships in terms of translational research with researchers at Berkeley and other places who are immunologists who are also looking at that, ways to harness the immune system as well as the, we call it the tumor microenvironment. So the environment surrounding the tumor, which can really suppress the body's immune response to the cancer, and how can you alter that so the body's own immune system can more, more, um, more adequately see and kill the tumor cells. So that's, that's I think, the, my primary area of interest. And then health disparities is definitely something that we're interested in. We're in the process of developing a UC-wide consortium, University of California-wide consortium, consisting of all the medical schools to really harness the overall patient volumes we have amongst all of the institutions to work on um, dis disparities in care. So that's based on race, ethnicity. It's also based on biologic sex in certain cases. Age is a big factor. Adolescents and young adults do worse for multiple reasons. And then socioeconomic status, as I mentioned. So that's really an area of interest. And the other piece of that that we're interested on is the side effect profile. So we know now that even for the kids who do well, a lot of them have to go through very, very intensive therapy and the outcomes are good, but then they have a whole host of lifelong side effects that they have to deal with, um, such as hearing loss, which a lot of the patients and families say that's the number one thing that decreases quality of life. And, and so survivorship is really important now. More and more adults are survivors of childhood cancer. And, and within California, that's something that within the consortium we're trying to understand better are those patients still getting care? You know, once they leave the pediatric center, I think the vast majority of them don't get the care that we prescribe them as far as routine follow-up, blood count, ultrasounds to look at their heart, lung function tests, hearing tests, all those things that we do such a great job of. Once we send them on their way, 
I think the vast majority of them don't get any of that services, um, especially those who are from lower socioeconomic or certain underrepresented minority populations. So that's another thing that we're trying to address. You see um, California-wide, which I think is really, really interesting to me. And then the, the third thing I'm interested in is um, global oncology. So again, it's really driven by the fact that we've had such great outcomes in, in high income settings like Europe and the United States that a lot of us find that the area that we can have a huge impact on is in low and middle income countries where the outcomes are quite poor. 80% um, of overall pediatric cancers in these settings with the outcomes being five, 10, 20% survival, really, really low. So even small interventions in those settings can make a huge difference because if you take leukemia in the United States, Fortunately now, 85-90% of patients are going to be cured, so getting that incremental 1-2% gain in survival is really, really hard. It takes a huge amount of effort, a lot of science and research, whereas even doubling the outcomes in a low and middle income setting is often much easier. So we have a, a, a long-term project in Vietnam, and we're um, working collaboratively with a few other institutions in the United States and internationally to develop a hematology oncology training program, which launched last year. And so we're training the first group of six pediatricians in Vietnam to um, really do, they do pediatric oncology, but to do a more really US-based training. So they really are well-versed in being the leaders in pediatric hematology oncology in Vietnam and developing some of the same collaborative consortium we use here to do um, clinical trials and advance the outcomes there. Wow. Can you, I have a question based on something you said with the age, the age of um, the patient kind of determining perhaps or having some um, impact on their outcome. Why is that? So it's, it's variable for multiple reasons. The genetics can be different. So depending on the disease, such as leukemia, the older patients tend to have different genetic abnormalities, which really derives that difference in prognosis. The other big factor is toxicity side effects. So the younger patients fortunately tolerate therapy much, much better, and the older patients have a lot more side effects. So their ability to tolerate the same doses may be limited, so that can also impact outcomes. That's part of the reason that the outcomes are worse in adults as well, although now they're trying to follow, especially for leukemia, they're trying to follow pediatric protocols more because the outcomes are better with pediatric protocols, but they're more intensive, so the side effect profile can be worse. Um, and there's a lot of other factors that we don't really know. I think there's probably factors in, in regard to compliance with medications. Younger patients, parents are really going to be there to make sure they get all their medications. A lot of the older patients may be self-administering. They may not be taking all the doses. So uh, I do think that, that that support network is less. And, and there are a lot less clinical trials for uh, older adolescents and young adults. For whatever reason, it's just been kind of a gray area between pediatric medicine and adult medicine. Are more younger kids? Is there are there a larger number of younger children diagnosed with cancer than adolescents? It depends on the disease type, but um, for a lot of the solid tumors, it can be even more so in the adolescents or young adults. Like some of the bone tumors, like osteosarcoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, tends to be more in older patients. So some disease types, germ cell tumors, like testicular cancers, more common in adolescents and young adults. Yeah, I mean, learning, you know, as we went through that three out of five kids are going to have these chronic long-term side effects from these medications, you know, it's amazing to see that you're focusing so much on that stuff. 
um, and, and trying to improve those outcomes. Cause for us, that was, you know, it's always amazing to hear that the outcomes are so good for your child who's diagnosed with one of these, these types of cancers. But then when you start hearing about the secondary side effects, you start to worry even more about what does the future holds and, and what is this going to look like 10 years down the line. So I can't even imagine having an adolescent child who's going through this and then now all of a sudden the outcomes are even worse and the side effects are worse. Um, that's got to be just a, a double, double whammy with that. Why would, why, and why, you know, why do you guys think that a younger child tolerates a toxin, you know, better than an older? Yeah, that was one of the first things that you know, that St. Jude piloted and, and, and was to give young children intensive chemotherapy for leukemia. And at that time, the thought was, kids they're small, they're delicate, and they can't really tolerate the intensive doses that adults get to treat diseases like leukemia. But, but the opposite is actually true because they're young and healthy. They don't have any organ dysfunction. They also are more rapidly able to recover. Um, their cellular growth is more rapid, as they do from any other injury. You know, they, they get a, an injury riding their bike, they're going to recover way faster than I am. So it's really the same <laughs> therapy. Uh, so they actually, even though they're smaller, they're, they're actually much stronger and they can tolerate a much more intensive therapy. And, and that's part of the reason the outcomes are better. And, and fortunately for younger children, many of them can be spared a lot of the toxicity that we see in older patients, but it really depends on the disease type. So for instance, neuroblastoma, um, pretty common childhood solid tumor, very common in young patients, really intensive treatment regimen. We've been able to achieve excellent outcomes, but side effect profile is, is vast. And so that's something that we're trying to now consider is how do we give more targeted therapy and um, I think that's really the next stage for a lot of these diseases is we may have peaked on outcomes, but can we do it safer um, without, without resulting in poorer outcomes? And I think these targeted therapies are really one way to do that in a sophisticated fashion. Amazing. I guess it's my question. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so the next question would be, where do you feel the biggest need for research um, is in pediatric cancer? for the research and treatment? Yeah, I, I thought about this question a lot. And I think that for me, I think the most elegant answer is really the immune system. And, and in the past, all of the studies in the basic science lab were done with these, they're, they're mice, they're called nude mice, which means they don't have an immune system. And so you would give chemotherapy and see if you could make the tumor shrink down one way or the other. And, and, and so that's really been the basis for a lot of the treatment regimens now is trying a new agent and seeing how the tumor responds. But, but the nude mice doesn't allow for the body's own immune system to contribute. And, and so a lot of the now really cutting edge work is, is looking at how, how can the immune system participate. And, and there's been so many new and interesting drugs that work. I think one of the problems for us is that a lot of them start with adult patients and they're really not focused on treating pediatric patients. And, and so that's always a challenge for us is, is you guys you know, put on the website is a very, very small percentage of cancer research funding is for pediatric cancer. And, and the drug companies are really focused on profit and profit is with high volume cancers, which are adult cancers, not pediatric cancers. So academic industry partnership is really vital to move these therapies forward. And I think those researchers who are really looking at how to harness the immune system either re-engineering different immune cell populations, this can be T cells or 
NK cells, there's your natural killer cells, there's your other cell populations. Researchers are looking at vaccines as well that can be given after the completion of therapy. Many patients will respond to the initial treatment, but then the cancer will come back. So what are ways that additional therapies can be given to stimulate the immune system or create memory in the immune system so that if any cancer cells pop up, the immune system would respond as it should normally. Mm -hmm. And again, the hope with those um, also that the side effects would be less. Exactly, yeah. So it's a more sophisticated approach with less off-target side effects. I always use the analogy of a nuclear bomb. It's kind of ugly, but that's the reality of chemotherapy. It really just sets off a nuclear bomb. And we're really just starting to understand for kids what, what are the long-term 30 to 40 to 50-year side effects. Um, there's an index called the frailty index that, that's used for, to grade older patients as, the far, as to how well they are. And, and, and kids that receive cancer therapy are more frail when you look at them 30, 40, 50 years out compared to kids that didn't. And, and I think that's because there's so many side effects that we still don't really understand. So giving directed therapy with less off-target side effects is, is a way to address a lot of the concerns we have, not only with improving outcomes, but also improving the quality of life for survivors. Right. And that's why we're here. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously our focus, right, is to, it's been kind of our whole mission is to work with you guys and work with the researchers to try to find where these, these studies are being done and where, where the research is being done on these types of things to say, you know, these are the best people in the industry to work on this. Uh, you know, being an academic on my, on my side, I understand that the industry is, is where a lot of that ability comes from because of that, that you have less roadblocks in the way. And I think, you know, and you can probably speak more to it kind of in your, your um, past as far as your experience goes with private nonprofits. How much have you noticed that the private nonprofits have improved that ability of industry and academia to work together to come up with a lot of these research ideas? Yeah, no, it's been hugely important, especially for pediatric cancer research. The, generally, the only funding source from a public standpoint is is, is NIH National Institute of Health, um, NCI National Cancer Institute. And that funding is pretty limited and, 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 and scientists that are on the cutting edge may be able to get that funding, but a lot of junior investigators who are starting or those that are looking for bridge funding, that, that, that funding is really, really challenging to get. So it's for someone who's, who's more junior in their first 10 to 15 years really of their research career, it's almost impossible to get that funding. Um, you may have a mentor who can help you, but, but really it, it takes a lot of steps to reach that level of sophistication now. It's, it's just the, the, the level of technology that's utilized to do these drug development trials is so high that it really takes a long time to get to that place of experience. And, and, and the private grants, the private foundations provide a lot of that that, that obstacle, that barrier that, that researchers have to get funding, the, those, those, those are really the sources to help those researchers that wouldn't otherwise not get funding. I think that's really, really important because a, a lot of the ideas are coming out now from, from junior investigators and, and they need help and support in reaching that level of expertise to get federal funding. And, and federal funding is, is, is challenging. It's, it's limited, sometimes more limited. Uh, and it can be really challenging to, to get. So I think 
for pediatric cancer in particular, Pirate Foundation, St. Baldrick's being the, the one that's really pioneered that, and now many other family foundations and others have been really, really vital to help that process. It's hard because it's, it's a slow and iterative process, and in science, there's always going to be many, many dead ends along the way, and I think I think that can be challenging for foundations because you want to have, to have to hit that home run, but the science there's a lot of strikeouts before you hit the home run, and 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 you just have to fund those things um, because it's it's iterative and and you learn from your mistakes and things right. that didn't eventually have a positive result. And it, right. it takes a long time. Go down the wrong path and say nope, that's the wrong way to turn it around. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, science, science is hard because in, even in academic medicine, there's a strong emphasis to publish positive results, but, but there's a lot to be gained from negative results, too, because it's important for people to know that, yeah, this was tried and it didn't work, because someone else may say, I want to do that, too, but publish, they'll say, okay, maybe I won't, but that's a, that's a huge problem with academic medicine, because it's hard to publish negative results. <laughs> No, nobody, nobody wants their name on that article, right? <laughs> people may want to publish it. It's just hard to get people to publish it. Yeah. 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 Well, so then I'm going to ask you, and I know this might be, this is such a, a hard question to answer, I'm sure, but is there any way that you could give us an idea of what an average research, um, you know, study does cost? Yeah, I saw that question in the list and I was thinking about it. I, I, I don't know how to answer it. I, I can tell you that from a time standpoint, it can take a long time, 10 to 15 years. Um, for a successful therapy, I'm sure it's many millions of dollars, but it's really hard to estimate. Uh, but it's definitely both lengthy and costly. And, and then that's why academic industry partnerships are really, really important. An academician may have an idea or find a target, but then they need to find a company that can really help develop the product, help run it through early phase trials. All those steps are really important. One of the things that, that has been brought up recently is, is being able to have trials in parallel for adults and pediatric patients. Because right now there's almost a 10-year lag from when a drug is trialed in adult patients and then when it becomes available for pediatric patient trials. Wow. It comes with the fear that kids are going to have more side effects, but as we mentioned, the reality is probably the opposite. Kids are probably going to tolerate things much better. Wow. But companies don't want to have the liability and... Um, but the reality is that that opportunity is really, really important for, for kids to be able to access those drugs as early as possible. But, but yeah, it's, it's many, many millions of dollars, which is, which is why it's, it's often challenging to get pharmaceutical companies on board for something that's just pediatrics. And, and we often find ourselves trying to repurpose drugs that have either tried and failed or were successful for adult cancers. But the disease process, the molecular targets, is often very, very different. So how far, you know, obviously it's a tough question as well, but how far away do you think we are from treating more pediatric cancers with these targeted immune style drugs versus more of like you talked about the nuclear bomb of chemo medication? That's a good question. There's always these, these silver bullets that come along the way and, and, and the thought is that this is going to be the answer for all cancers or all pediatric cancers. There was a medication called Gleevec in the 90s for, for um, chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML, and it targets a protein that helps the leukemia cells grow, and it's very, very effective in stopping that process. So that was thought to be the silver bullet to help answer the question for all cancers, but 
cancers are really smart and there's often redundant pathways and even if you target one way that the cancer grows, it doesn't stop it from growing or coming back. And it's the same thing as in the case of cellular therapies that there's been a lot of promise and for leukemia, um, giving CAR T cells, so re-engineering the body's T cells to target a specific cell surface protein called CD19 can be really, really successful. But, but even then, half the patients have the leukemia come back. And, and so it's, it's, it's a proof of concept, but to be able to do that in metastatic solid tumors where the outcomes for kids and adults are still very, very poor, I'd say less than one in five patients will be cured. We still have a long way to go. Um, I think it's a piece of the puzzle um, using targeted therapy, using immunotherapy, other approaches. But but I think we still have a 10 to 15 area that, that deserves a lot of focus. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I think that's with any research, right? We're always about 10 years behind, but we're always pushing for more. And so it's just good information for people to know. Um, well, switching gears to more of a personal subject with us, um, you know, we as cancer parents have had a lot of anxieties and a lot of fears, and we've contacted you all hours of the day and all days of the week, and you've always, you know, impressed us with how timely you are with your responses, how empathetic you are, how quick you are to say, if you need to talk, you can, you can talk, we'll walk through this. Um, I know I personally always feel a lot better after I get off the phone with you. And I think probably a lot of pediatric cancer families feel the same way. They have these same anxieties and fears. Anytime your kid tells you he doesn't want to eat or he, he, he feels tired or any of these things that probably a lot of kids around that same age are going through, um, as you always say, normal things being normal, right? Um, but it's always hard for us. So how do you balance that professional and that emotional side of, of treating these kids and, and their families? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and um, it's a lifelong challenge, just uh, constantly trying to maintain um, your emotional well-being and also balance, um, and, and you keep learning. It's, 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 it's not something that you master, and, and then that's it. I think just as your discussion with each family is a little bit different based on their communication style, how much information they need to um, get, the same with this. It's just constantly readjusting and, and learning. And, and, and the training process is a really important part of that. Everybody really learns how to cope both positively and negatively when you start to, to deal with the stress of it. Um, as a fellow, you really have the first opportunity to spend a lot of time being the, the primary caregiver for the patients and the families. And, and and, and you learn through that process. It's really hard. And I think everybody in fellowship at some point thinks they can't do it because it's just so hard. And um, I got a lot of gray hair during fellowship. My hair was totally black before I started fellowship. It was my Obama years. <laughs> and even faster than eight years, huh? You, you got it even less. <laughs> Three, really. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that for me that, Thinking about the patients and the families and their journey helps keep me centered because no matter how hard it is for me, I always think about how much harder it is for the families because they're they're living it. You know, we're we're vicariously living it. We're part of the journey and we're helping them, but it's nothing like what the families are going through. And and then um, you know, really focusing on all the things that bring joy in life. You know, our jobs provide us a lot of perspective on what's important in life. So definitely don't take things for granted. And, and enjoy your time away from work and, and really focus on 
the things that you can do to make the kid's journey better. And so we do a lot of, of quality of life too, and, and how do we assess that for the patients and families? And, and I think that, that for personally, that helps me too, to think about a lot of the things that, that we provide to the families are also things that we can bring back at home to make sure our quality of life is good. It's really important to, to maintain that, that hygiene and to prevent burnout and make sure you're still in a good place to take care of the kids. Yeah, well, you know, we appreciate you. And we, we appreciate the fact that you would send us an email on a weekend and, you know, hopefully you are able to balance it well. It seems like you are. Uh, we do have that. guilt before yeah, we sending do. those We things, do. We but... don't want to send it. We hesitate for two seconds. Uh, but uh, part of our job, and, and I think that, you know, the number of ways that we can be contacted now is, is both a positive and a negative because it's hard to... For everyone, right? I mean, it's hard to sign off because you're like, well, let me just check the email one more time. And I think that we all want every patient to feel like they're our only patient. So, um, you know, I think that's the best way to provide care. But yeah, it's a precarious balance to maintain um, some amount of separation too. But but I think the reality is that just accept that there's not really a lot of separation, and you take your work home with you and you know, find ways to to still do things that that to keep you from, from burning out. Well, you've made our journey a lot easier. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, so where do you feel an organization like Enzone can best serve the pediatric oncology field? Yeah, I was thinking about that question too. And, and I think it's a complex one to answer. I think that it really depends on, on the founders, on you guys and your experience and, and where you feel like the gaps were because there, there are a lot of things you could choose to fund and there's a lot of funding organizations. But I think that really it should be where you felt like these are things that I that you guys would have felt were helpful. And it doesn't have to be hardcore science, it can be, but, but even, you know, how do we improve quality of life for the patients and, and the families? and we, we spend a lot of time now thinking about the psychosocial care for the families, providing complementary therapies, acutherapy, massage, um, virtual reality. How do we make the journey better for the patients and families? Because it's, it's quite traumatic. You survive, but you, you take, a, take away a lot of trauma. And so that's another area that we're focusing on is how do we, how do we improve that so the kids and the families you know, feel okay on the other side. So, so I, I really think it depends on each family's own experience and, and where they feel like there could be improvements. It doesn't have to be with just uh, treatments. It can be. Obviously, there's a lot we can do in that regard, but, but if you think about the whole patient, there are a lot of areas where we can improve upon. Even communication. You know, you look at how some providers communicate well and other providers don't, and, and why is that? And what can we do systematically to improve that? I think there's a lot of things that can be done in that regard. And education, um, for providers as well as patients and families. They're all areas where there's gaps. There's a lot to tackle. And I think that, you know, that obviously our, our main pillar of our mission is the research side of things. But the other thing that we obviously felt very strongly about was the education component to primary care physicians, you know, with Enzo's diagnosis being missed so much. And then everything, all, all of these parents that we talked to who had gone through the same situation we had same where story. same story every time of, you know, I kept telling them that something was wrong and they wouldn't listen and they told me everything was fine. And, 
and I understand, you know, the concept of, of the zebra amongst the horses and not to look for the zebra, right? Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean there's no zebra there. And so for us, that's such an important component is how do we provide that education to avoid these delays in pediatric cancer diagnosis where 80% have metastasized or spread by the time they're even diagnosed? You know, could we have better outcomes if we were to catch these things sooner? Do you, do you feel that we could have better outcomes in this field if we were to catch these things a little bit sooner? For certain diseases, yes, and for certain diseases, no. So fortunately for leukemia lymphoma, doesn't impact outcomes, but for solid tumors, no question, if you pick it up prior to metastatic, uh, metastatic disease, the outcomes are going to be much better. Whether that's an intrinsic quality of the tumor itself, where you're just going to always present with metastatic disease, or you could pick it up earlier and, 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 and pick it up before metastatic disease, there's probably both cases. So yeah, definitely localized disease outcomes are much better. And I think, I think the answer to that is complex, and, and it's multi-layered. A lot of it's based on even who gets into medical school and, and how do you communicate with families and how much do you listen to the mom who says, I'm really worried about this. And you know, we, all, we also learn that during our training is that, that follow-up is really important and, and rethinking your differential diagnosis and listening to the parents. And, and you know, we, but we're also human and there's gonna be mistakes and you know, how do you learn from those and improve? So I think it's a really multi-layered and complex question and problem, but yeah, I think more information. We try during training to really focus on training the residents to recognize symptoms that they don't think are normal, because you see a lot of normal, and just having that gut feeling based on all of your normal exams is just different somehow, and, and follow-up being really important. And the patient keeps following up and it's not better. You have to rethink what you're doing. But a lot of that's really retraining the communication style and, and and I think that's hard but I don't know the right answer to that. I know when we were in there because we thought about this question a lot and I know there's a lot of ways to help but for me you know sitting there the number all those things are lovely and all the ways that I could be helped or Enzo could be helped are lovely but you know the number one thing was I want him to be okay you know I want, I want him to be healthy. I want this to go away. And so I think that's why for me, it was most important to focus on research for cures for treatments. Um, because at the end of the day, if you have to pick one thing that you want, I think I, I, I mean, I speak for myself that that's the number one thing that I want is for him to recover, to get a cure. Um, and so that's why we definitely, you know, went that route <laughs> and would like to do that. But within that, you know, cause there's some, I know that there's some cancers that just don't have cures. There's just some, you know, there's some big holes there. Maybe if you could just talk about that a little bit, like where, you know, if more money and funding is really important just to be funneled towards, you know, cancers that just, there's not much to offer these families and these children right now. Cause I can't imagine getting that news from you. Cause the news I got from you was traumatic enough, but if, but it, you know, it could have, it could have been worse news. So. Yeah, you know, that's the silver lining for us is that even though we have to tell families that their kids have cancer, that often we can say, look, we're going to get through this, we're likely going to get through this, and your kid's going to be okay. There are definitely diseases where that's not the case. So we, we talked about the metastatic solid tumors, where only one in five kids are going to survive. We didn't talk about brain tumors, that's a whole other category. And 
after leukemia, brain tumors are the most common cancer in kids, and, and the outcomes are getting better, but there are still disease types where the outcomes are, are poor, and there's one particular cancer, it's called, uh, it's called DIPG, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, where there is no, there is no treatment, and um, a lot of scientists are still trying. There's ways to potentially extend life, but, but there's no cure. Um, so there are cancers like that. And, and brain tumors are tough because um, even if it's a quote-unquote benign tumor, it's in the brain. And, and so there's really no really true benign tumor in the brain. Now, I think there's lots of ways to approach that. And directed therapy is something that's being looked into more now. How do we more directly give therapy um, to the brain tumor rather than giving it through an IV where the vast majority of it's not going to even go into the past the blood-brain barrier, um, ways to deliver it to get it past the blood-brain barrier, um, utilizing radiation therapy more effectively, which in young children can be pretty neurologically devastating. So I think that's another area in addition to metastatic solid tumors where there are a lot of opportunities. And when you talk about the other the metastatic solid, the other solid, solid tumors, um, what specifically, what types of cancers are you speaking of? So that's a whole variety of tumors, different than adult cancers. So kids aren't going to get the common adult cancers, lung, breast, colon. Uh, these, are, these are cancers that occur in kids and often young adults. So it can be bone tumors, so that's uh, osteosarcoma, Ewing sarcoma, soft tissue sarcoma, which is a group of tumors called rhabdomyosarcoma or, or, or non-rhabdomyosarcoma, that, that group of patients. Yeah, and that one's pretty sensitive to us because, you know, you when we first started looking at Enzo's diagnosis, we thought maybe it was a rhabdomyosarcoma. So you held yourself pretty well as far as the uh, telling us what the outcomes looked like like that. But after after doing some research, it was <laughs> it wasn't as good as uh, as no. the only you know that would have been localized and still pretty good outcome. But then some of the toxicities of therapy, especially if you're having to do radiation in a young patient. Yeah, that one, you, that one, we would be going to San Diego for, I believe it was six weeks for radiation every day, was it? Yeah. Monday through Friday. On his head, on his face. On his skull, yeah. All right, so, okay, so, thanks. I just wanted to clarify that because I didn't know exactly what types of tumors you were speaking of when all the different categories. Okay. Um. Last question, you know, we really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything else that you think is important to put out to families or to the audience that's going to listen to this and, and anything that you, that you want out there um, on this kind of stage? I think just two things. I think that, you know, if you're worried about your child, that just as you guys do and so many families do, it's really important to advocate for your child. And sometimes that means going to see somebody else or going to the emergency department and, and, and <clears throat> that happens and, and these are rare things and, and sometimes that means going and finding your kids fine hopefully uh, but a lot of our families end up in that situation and it really starts with the parent being worried and feeling something that doesn't feel normal and and you know unfortunately not always the doctor has the time or listens or does the investigations. You know, I think the vast majority of our patients are correctly diagnosed and referred to us, but, but not everybody. Um, and the other thing I think is that we didn't talk a lot about is that it, it's, it's really a, such a team effort to take care of these patients. 
and obviously the families play a huge role and it's a nice bright spot compared to adults who often don't have that level of support and, and I think within the hospital there's so many layers of people that are taking care of these kids I think the nurses provide such a daily amazing care and all the other support staff, wildlife, music therapy, art therapy, talking about fantastic. the mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I think I think those are often the uns, unsung heroes, uh, interpreters for us, uh, environmental services, all those people are really in a children's hospital also focused on taking care of the kids. And I think that that environment is, is really therapeutic for the kids. It's bright, it's cheerful, it's positive. And I think that that energy really does make a big difference too. Yeah, I think when you see your kid looking forward to things in the hospital, like, you know, Lauren, the music therapist coming in or child life services coming to play with him. And what time are they going to come play with me while he's sitting in his hospital bed getting his chemo? You know, you start to really get perspective on how important those other roles are that, that you know, even me as a healthcare practitioner, I had never even heard of child life services. I didn't even know that was a, a thing. And so to see that and to see the, the other, as you said, layers of that care, and see how the kids respond to that. It, I agree with you, it's such an important role in the whole yeah. process. Yeah. Enzo just told me today he just can't wait to go back. When this whole thing is over, meaning COVID, um, he can't wait to go back and see everybody. And um, he just, yeah. I, liked, I liked being there. I liked the hospital. <laughs> Great, okay, you know? As long as he's not there for treatment, we'll go back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's a weird second family, you know, yeah. yeah, people obviously feel a lot of trauma going back to South, but at the same time, there's a lot of people there that care about the patients and families, and you develop a relationship that's that's unique because really, you know, obviously your friends and family try to empathize, but it's different than being with other people who really know what the cancer journey is about, and 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 a lot of the families make lifelong relationships with the other families that are going through it too. It's, yeah, you just really a, you can't you know. understand until you're there, which I always say I'm so happy for people who don't understand and who will never understand. But yeah, it's just it's like anything until you're in that situation, you can't ever truly know it. The, the open word is just nice because it's, it's really therapeutic for the families to be able to talk to each other and the kids to be able to talk to each other because no one else really can understand what they're going through. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Anna, we really appreciate you taking the time to so do much. this. We're, we're so appreciative of you in so many ways. Um, you know, number one, for helping Enzo get through his treatments and guiding him along that way and continuing to be a positive light in, in the struggles that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, we just really want you to know how much we appreciate you and appreciate what you do. And There are no words no. truly expressed. <laughs> so... You know, that's the privilege of our job. That's what makes it special for us, too. Yeah. We well, do it well. <laughs> you do. You do. Um, and uh, take care in this crazy COVID environment. Hopefully, you're staying safe and staying healthy. Um, yeah. Fortunately, it hasn't affected the kids too much. That's been okay. really great for us. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're grateful for that, too. Um, well, have a fantastic rest of your nice night. We really appreciate it. And uh, continue doing what you're doing <laughs> best, which is taking care of these kids. We'll try to yeah, help out as much as we can. Enzo and me. Thank you. We're here if you need us. <laughs> All right, thanks. All right, bye. Bye.